Hello, I'm Ray Reich, founder and CEO of RevOps Squared, and your host of the Metrics That Measure Up podcast. We talk to a wide variety of B2B SaaS and cloud thought leaders, executives, investors, and people just like you to discuss the metrics and benchmarks they use to make metrics-informed decisions. Now on to today's show. Welcome to today's episode of the Metrics at Major Up podcast. Today, we are joined by Jeremy Donovan, Senior Vice President of Revenue Strategy at SalesLoft and a current master's candidate in data science at University of Virginia. Today, we will be covering three main topics. First, the core components of a revenue strategy. Second, the key metrics to predict and then measure the success of a revenue strategy. And third, the future of the B2B cloud revenue team. Jeremy, please take a moment to give a brief background overview of your journey to becoming a guest on the Metrics Major Up podcast. Well, first of all, Ray, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here. I, I love that you mentioned that I'm a master's candidate in data science. I was not expecting that. And I, I love that. I guess I can give you a little background on that too. So how did I get here? I started out as a semiconductor engineer way, way back in the late 90s. And over the course of time, I worked my way into sales by doing this thing that I call add a word, drop a word. So I was a semiconductor engineer. I dropped the engineer and became a semiconductor analyst. I then dropped the semiconductor part and I was kind of a general technology analyst. Uh, Then I dropped the analyst part and moved into product development. So information services, product development, and then product management, product marketing, corporate marketing, marketing and sales, and then ultimately sales and sales strategy. So that's my progression to getting here, but it's it's all built on a technical foundation, which relates to like why when I'm closer to retirement, am I pursuing a master's degree in data science? And it really is just I like to keep my, you know, my brain active and fresh on the latest and greatest and whatever's kind of technically hot at a given time. So I've done that my whole life. You know, I'm really impressed by it because I, I went from engineer into the world of sales and then kind of go-to-market revenue management. And I was had a boss once that said, oh, A-A-B-B-C closing, always be closing. Mm. And my number one phrase today is A-B-L. A always BBL learning. And you actually are personifying that. So good on you, Jeremy. But let me talk a little bit about this title you have at SalesLoft. You're the head of revenue strategy. When I first saw that, because I've been following you for a while, I'm like, I got to talk to Jeremy. What are the components of a revenue strategy? And what's the head of revenue strategy responsible for? Yeah, I've taken advantage of rebranding my job title, as many have. It used to be head of sales strategy. I've been at SalesLoft now about three and a half years. And during that time, I always had the the sales slash revenue strategy part of what I do. I've also cycled through leadership roles in a bunch of different areas in sales development, in sales engineering, in sales operations, and so on. So with respect to strategy, like how I would separate revenue operations when we also have our, I no longer run RevOps. We have a great leader there, Jamie Miller. How I would separate revenue strategy from revenue operations is I have historically been what I like to refer to as the consigliere to our CRO or a consigliere, because we have a few, to our chief revenue officer. And what that means, right, is if you were to take apart the pieces, so 
I'll start with strategy. Like what is strategy? Strategy is all about people, process, and technology that's needed to accomplish goals. And so that means, let's say we're going to change something about our territory strategy, right? Then we need to think about in that order, how is this going to impact people and how are we going to deploy this? What are the processes that we're going to follow in order to change our territory? What rules are we going to apply and so on? And then the technology where applicable, like is there technology that will help us with that type of transition? So that, you know, again, that's the strategy piece. And then the revenue piece, the reason I, I updated the title from sales to revenue is because it has happened in the industry over the past couple of years, right? We went from VPs of sales to chief revenue officers. And during that time, at the very least, the chief revenue officers assume not only pre-sales, but also some of the post-sales pieces, uh, inclusive of support and customer success. So you know, the reason I felt it was okay to change from sales to revenue is that I, I've now worked on a number of projects across the CS and success worlds. And you know, the other piece of revenue is marketing. A lot of times CROs and CMOs are separated, but I, I have a background. In fact, I was a chief marketing officer in a couple of places. So I have that background as well. So that's hopefully I've earned it, but that's for others to judge. Well, you just maybe open Pandora's box for me here on kind of CROs versus CMOs. So to have a overarching revenue strategy, do you need to have a well-integrated marketing, sales, customer success organization that shares the same goals and have interdependent goals between the different organizations? Maybe it's an maybe it's an obvious yes to that one. Although it'd be fun to to debate it with someone who didn't feel that way. I mean, I can speak for for my experience at Salesloft. Absolutely, our chief revenue officer and our chief marketing officer share the same goals. They also have sub goals within their departments, but there are overarching goals that they share that are super important. And that's sort of top line revenue, obviously pipeline generation and and so on. One fascinating area of that is actually what we've done with our sales development team. It's micro, you know, sort of a more in the weeds a little bit, but I think important. We actually moved our inbound SDRs into the marketing organization and we kept our outbound SDRs inside the sales organization. We did that a couple of years ago. That turned out to be a pretty big growth accelerator. The outbound side was already humming, but on the inbound side, you know, we were reasonably invested, but I think we could have invested more. So by moving that team over to marketing, what you did was you created, you know, you, you already had this incentive in marketing to generate leads, but now there's a much, much tighter feedback mechanism from what marketing executes program-wise, you know, to what ultimately turns into quality and qualified leads. So yes, I think tight integration is super effective. I don't think it's sort of a corollary question, I suppose, but I, I don't necessarily think that CMOs need and you see this sometimes like need to report to a chief revenue officer. I think marketing and sales can and often should be run with leaders who are peers to each other. And I think that's probably the right, more often than not, the right answer. There are exceptions to that. But in a larger organization, those are really, really big jobs and hard for a single human to do both of. Yeah. It's really interesting with a lot of the research we do, Jeremy. What we found was to have a CRO and or a revenue operations function. We saw that typically happening right around the 20 million ARR period, Mm -hmm. because that's when as you're scaling, you have more, I will say, process gaps and that's friction between the departments. But then at 100 million above, it went the other way. It goes back to having a CMO that reports to the president or CEO separate from the CRO. So I agree with you, but I think there's certain growth stages 
where it's kind of a signal that we need to get more aligned between the functions. I think that well, that's certainly right. And it's also right when you're smaller. I mean, you can't necessarily yet afford to have two, you know, the more senior executives you have, the more cost there is, the more, you know, politics and bureaucracy there is. And at some point you need, you know, you need to have that capacity to be able to, to do that. With respect to the revenue operations function, I think that's another, it's a separate thing is like, you can have a CRO and a CMO, but the question then becomes, if you have a, a true revenue operations function that spans sales, post-sales and marketing like, should that be split up or not? Should you have a marketing operations distinct from sales operations or customer success operations? And there, I actually feel that you're actually better off having a single organization, uh, whether you want to go down that path or not, but it's up to you. If you do that, then you do need to be really careful about who that organization reports to because right, they're going to be beholden to whomever they report to. I, I think in that circumstance, you really want that team to either work for a, a COO or a CFO as opposed to, you know, the revenue or marketing leader. But that can be unpopular with those leaders. Yeah. But what I totally agree with that. And that's where the CEO needs to kind of stand up and set the tone. Hey, Correct. we're doing revenue operations to have well integrated marketing, sales, and customer success that aligns to the customer journey and the customer experience. And the best way to do that is through an integrated organization responsible for the data flows, the process, the platform, and the insights from an analytics perspective. So how do you divide that separation of duties between your role as the head of revenue strategy and RevOps at SalesLoft? Yeah, well, there, there was a decent period of time where I, I had both pieces and I didn't have to divide anything. You know, right now, that's my, you know, my official job title is, is head of sales revenue strategy. I also have four other jobs that are, I don't have job titles for. So for me, I, I, I flit between those five things. And in truth, I'm actually more of a general corporate strategy person, which is something I have been even prior to sales loft, where I will almost work as a, a McKinsey-esque consultant inside the organization to go and and solve problems, you know, again, across whatever support, any, any revenue function, right? Support CS, pre-sale, post-sale, et cetera. It's an interesting thing that you just said, because I see this trend going on in our industry, the B2B SaaS cloud industry with a chief of staff. And that chief of staff kind of serves the same role that you do in the revenue strategy role. Would you agree? Yes. And I'm smiling because that is one of my unofficial job titles is our CEO and our C. OO, each have chiefs of staff. So I, I am, in fact, the chief of staff as well for our CEO, Kyle Porter. And I have a peer who is the chief of staff for our COO, Rob Foreman. Interesting. Well, I'm glad I actually captured a trend that's actually relevant at SalesLoft. <laughs> super let's, relevant. This, is, this is the metrics that major up podcast. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was as the head of revenue strategy, first of all, you're responsible for the strategy. Do you also have responsibility for some of the execution plans or the tactics to execute that strategy? Yeah, the way I I love your podcast title because I'm monster data driven for for folks who know me. And again, obviously from the data science thing, but I'm I'm a huge sales stats nerd. So how to separate like the the strategy and and sort of the implementation and you know tactics, if you will, operational rhythm. Uh, the way I think about it is 
you've got people who are working in the business, right? They're, they're actively selling, they're actively, you know, if it's, if it's, you know, on the RevOps side, like actively monitoring dashboards and so on and so forth. My role is, is like to work more on the business as opposed to in the business. So I, I wish I could draw, but it's kind of like, a, imagine a sort of this crossover where early on a hundred, you know, my, my team and I are doing a hundred percent of the work on strategy architecting what we need to do. We're working a ton, right, with those people who are who work in the business. And then gradually there comes this this like decline in in our involvement and this ramp up. And there's a crossover point about who takes the lead. So uh, let me make that tangible. We are actively deploying an upgrade to the way our customer success managers identify risk and opportunity in their portfolio of customers. So we knew that we needed to solve this issue because, right, CSMs need to figure out which accounts to go after and for those accounts, what to do with those accounts. And if you've got a lot of accounts, you get overwhelmed. So we identified this as an opportunity. So my my team and I worked on, again, defining like what's the problem and then what people, process, and technology are we going to throw at solving that. And, you know, in this case, sometimes we buy solutions, sometimes we build. In this case, we built something internally to solve that. And we're currently, as as you and I are talking, in transitioning into the implementation phase. So my responsibility and my team's responsibility is now moving from responsible. We use the RACI model, R-A-S-C-I, responsible, approver, support, informed, and consulted. So I am switching from the R on that project to the S to an S. There's one R, but there could be multiple S's. So I'm I'm switching from responsible to support. And now we have a CS operations leader who has taken on the R mantle, the responsible mantle, and now I support her. So there that that's kind of how the things transition is, you know, somebody ultimately needs to be responsible. And we're we were super clear in that degree of responsibility. Now, as I mentioned before, we are the metrics to measure a podcast. So let's go from the strategy to the tactics and how we measure the success of the strategy that you turn over to someone to kind of operate it. So let's use that exact example. What are the top two to three outcome or lagging metrics you evaluate to see if this new strategy is working? And then for that same thing, what's the two or three leading indicators or metrics that you look at to see if progress is being made towards that ultimate outcome metric? Yeah. So I had mentioned I operate as a bit of a McKinsey-esque person inside the company. And the reason I say that is because I spent eight years working for not McKinsey, but former McKinsey partners and uh, senior associates within McKinsey who taught me their techniques, you know, not all their techniques, but as many as I could absorb. And one of the techniques that McKinsey people use is called an issue tree. And it's a way of basically deconstructing those metrics that matter, those goals into their constituent components in a, in a hierarchical way. So again, to make that concrete with this example, you know, if we're talking about customer success, at the end of the day, the critical lagging indicator is net retention. I sometimes get it confused in my own head, but net retention can exceed 100%, right? It, it should exceed 100% because that's inclusive of both the stuff that you renew as well as how you expand. So as we break the issued tree down from top to bottom, net retention then breaks into gross retention, which would not include the expansion piece, and then the upgrades, the expansion part of the revenue. So to measure success of of this customer success program, right, we're trying to figure out whether we're moving the needle on each one of those things. There's another set of metrics besides like 
those more financial centric metrics, which are things that also matter. And that's, that's our productivity of our team. So as we scale the business, like, are we able to get happy, productive, which I, I, I should throw in the happy piece too, right? Cause you want it, you need to retain your people want and need to retain your people. So like, do we have happy, productive customer success managers? So I think those are critical metrics as well. Interesting. You call it the issue tree from McKinsey. I think of it as cascading objectives, right? From the top all the way down. And I wanted to see if you have this layer of metrics for your customer success. And that is things like, do you look at the correlation of customer SAT scores or NPS scores, both user and economic buyers, as a leading indicator to net retention? Yes, we absolutely do. So in fact, what we created in this particular case was a custom score that gets computed for every single existing customer account. And that custom score has a bunch of categories of things as you go through that, you know, that cascade, if you will, or that issue tree, if you will. And those things fall into a few different categories. You know, one is the financial metrics we just talked about, which are more outcome based, but then there's a bunch of leading indicators and those fall into the categories of adoption, which is, you know, kind of fairly obvious, I guess, are people using what they bought configuration? Did they set the environment up to get the most value out of what we sell? And then as you just said as well, sentiment. So we track CSAT, of course, but then we also track NPS for both our admin users and our non-admin users. And there are a bunch of other leading sentiment indicators that we track. So all that gets built into a composite health score that comes out, but like you also then need to decompose it. So we let our CSMs know like for every account, what's green, what's yellow, and what's red. So I'm going to geek out. So I hope I don't lose all my listening audience right now, but I really like to look at the correlation of an input metric to the ultimate outcome. And I use R squared as a logistical regression model to do that. An example right now, net retention is the number one impactor of revenue to enterprise value multiples. Do you actually go to the point and look at NPS or your custom health score and try to look at the correlation between those scores and the ultimate gross and net retention rates? I'm smiling again because you're speaking my language. So in fact, that is, if you learn anything in statistics to apply to business, my absolute number one technique is is logistic regression. So we use it all over the place. So yes, we use logistic regression you know, to predict retention where the dependent variable, right? The outcome variable is whether or not we've retained a customer and the inputs are that series of things that we just talked about, inclusive of, of NPS. So that was on the post-sale side. We also use logistic regression on the pre-sale side. So we, we have a model that tells us the probability that we will win an opportunity with any particular company. And that the independent variables that go into that are things like firmographics and intent and so forth. Okay. I mean, we're not going to have enough time, Jeremy, but I got to, I got to go to that because the whole science of forecasting and forecast management is uh, an area I just love and I've been doing some research on it. So are you using that as a way to actually conduct your forecast that your CRO and CFO provide? And are there other indicators like activity metrics or event metrics or other things that you're using that factors into that model? You've hit on on a third model that we have that is our forecasting model. That one does not use logistic regression. It uses Bayesian statistics. But yeah, we do use a statistical model there as well. 
to particularly for new business, right? To predict what is, you know, two major factors, I would say. One is what is the likelihood that an opportunity will close within the expected window, right? So if we're looking at a quarter within a quarter or a month, what have you, we're gonna we're gonna try to figure out, you know, is the close date that the rep put on there realistic? And then the other thing we're predicting is the obvious one, which is what is the likelihood this deal is to close? And for whether or not the deal is likely to close, it's exactly those factors that you talked about, right? It's like, what is the activity on the account? Who is that activity from? Are we within the normal range where of where this deal should be? You know, elapsed time wise relative to other deals in the same forecast category or stage. You know, most of the stuff I've talked about is is internal. We actually have a, a part of, of the Salesloft platform called Deals that shows that score. We call it a deal engagement score. So that deal engagement score has like twenty different factors in it, inclusive of activity that tell you how healthy a deal is. Oh, so you ingest information from your the CRM or other tools and create that score that way? That's exactly correct. Yeah. And our data wow. science team, they built us an internal model, right? For how, how to use that for our own stuff. And then they took that model and applied it to our customer data. So our customers can actually see that deal engagement score for their deals as well. Yeah. Well, hopefully if I haven't lost all the listeners <laughs> here, I'm going to zoom back out a little bit and talk about a new topic. And that is product-led growth. It's all the buzz today in the cloud industry. And you look at the revenue multiples of the Snowflakes and Twilio's and even Datadog and formerly Zoom. Mm -hmm. And they're saying it's because the net retention is so high in a product-led growth model, especially if they have usage-based pricing. So number one, do you use any product-led growth techniques at your current company? As probably a lot of guests will tell you, great question, uh, which I don't think I've used that phrase yet. So first of all, you know, you and I are old enough, or I'm certainly old enough to remember that everything gets rebranded and what's now called PLG or product-led growth used to be called freemium. So it, it is all the rage under that new moniker. And for, for folks who are kind of less familiar with the term, but obviously more familiar with freemium, it's like you get a lightweight version of Snowflake. It's either less functionality or the same functionality for a limited duration of time or whatever the different factors they put in there. And then, you know, as you use, as you consume, you get billed either in advance, which is better for cash flow purposes, or you get billed in arrears, uh, which is, you know, better for the customer, but harder from a cash flow point of view for the company. But, you know, whichever way they bill, that's what that stuff is. So for us specifically, Salesloft and other sales engagement platforms, which is the space we compete in, there really is not a really true PLG offering out there. And the reason is that these things require a degree of implementation. And we're all obviously trying to make it easier and easier for customers to implement and certainly more sophisticated and savvy customers can implement. But it's it's so critically important to us for net retention to make sure that customers implement as thoroughly and as effectively early on as possible, that it's economically like in the interest of the companies in our segment to continue to do that implementation, even though it costs us you know, money to, to actually do that. What we've done instead is we recognize that there is this need to kind of draw people into what we do. So we actually created a series of lighter weight, we call them micro apps, they're, they're one, basically one page websites or single functionality applications that people can use that you know would ultimately draw them, hopefully draw them into our ecosystem. An example of that is they're all named very simply. So we have one that's find-business-email.com, 
And you know, you guessed it, it allows you to find business email totally free. You just put in a first name, last name, and company name, and then it, it does some some wizardry behind the scenes to try to figure out what's the right email for that individual. So we have a whole bunch of those that for us constitute our PLG strategy, but it's not the traditional PLG like you described for Datadog and Snowflake, where you're actually getting the product. But do you still track some of those metrics like website to free product usage, free product usage to paid product usage, activation rates, et cetera? Absolutely, we do. Yeah. So we those things are very much part of the attribution model. If I was talking to someone earlier about this, their top seller at Oracle NetSuite, and this guy has hit between 220 and 280% of quota year after year after year. And we were talking about the difference between inbound leads and some of these kind of PLG leads, because they get a decent amount of PLG as well. And some of their PLG is the, you know, the sort of the usual demo or freemium, but they also get demo requests and they also get like white paper downloads as quote unquote leads. And he said something really smart that I loved, which was like the people who are using PLG, like great leads, those are legit leads. The people who have a demo request, great leads, those are legit leads. When they come with just like a white paper download or some other asset, which I think some of these micro apps that we have are a little in that category, like fine business email, you're not necessarily expecting to get a call from a sales loft rep when you use fine business email or some of the other ones that we have. And this guy had a really smart thing to say. He said, the, his name is Jack Teller, by the way. So he, he, his smart thing that he said was, what that tells me is it tells me that the company is likely to be a viable target. So he, he sort of uses that to not say, hey, I saw you use fine business email. Let's talk about sales loft. What he does is he says like, hey, I, he doesn't even necessarily reference fine business email, right? Now he's gonna use that to map the organization, not just necessarily the person who used it, figure out whether or not that, that organization is a good fit and then engage in an outbound prospecting approach. So it's a, I thought that was really smart of him. Very interesting. Well, unfortunately, we're coming to the end of this podcast episode, but I wanted to ask you one other question on the topics we've been kind of circling around, and that is, you won't believe I'm going to ask a metrics geek this question. What are the top two to three metrics that you want to see go away And what are the two or three metrics that you think need to be used more in companies to measure the success of their revenue strategy? I guess the more is easier than the go away piece. You know, the more is people talk a lot about LTV to CAC, but I've rarely seen people be hyper-disciplined about measuring and reporting and goaling on that. So I, I think that's one I would like to see, you know, more of and better defined for both of the components, lifetime value, as well as customer acquisition cost, So that, that'll be one. I also do, I mean, there's a lot of people who love and hate net promoter score. I love NPS. And obviously you need to run the correlation for your company to uh, whatever you know, lagging indicator impact that has. So that's another one I would like to see, to see more of. Less of, I have a harder time with that one simply because I think like every metric can matter, but they don't all matter at the same time. And so if you think about like a dashboard, the problem with a lot of dashboards is there's too much on there. And and I think about, it's also something I learned from my McKinsey bosses. There's a progression from descriptive, right? So that's all the information to diagnostic that tells you like why each thing is the way it is to prescriptive. So if I, if I relate this back to our, the customer success example that we've been, that we've been using here, right, is previously, this is a problem. Like all of our, our CSMs had three or four different BI dashboards they would look at, and they had no idea how to put all that together. But that's descriptive, right? I mean, that's successfully descriptive. 
And it's not that like all the metrics that were in there were useful, but just not all of them at the same time. So where we went to, right, was to figure out which of those metrics were out of kilter. And for the ones that were out of kilter to then further prioritize those, because you could have six metrics out of kilter, that's still overwhelming. Tell me the top one, the number one, the number two, the number three, and then to be not just descriptive and diagnostic, but ultimately prescriptive that I want to say, okay, for those three things, here is what you need to do to get them from red to green. So that that to me is is like the holy grail. So it's not that I want to get rid of any metrics. It's more that I want to suppress metrics that are in normal ranges and flag the ones that are not and give people workflows to address those. That's fair. But let me throw three metrics out there and sure. see what you think. And kind of a, a yes, no, or it's got to be a Quick answer, quick. yeah. MQLs, marketing qualified lease. Overhyped. Right. And misused, I think. Yes. SALs, sales accepted leads. I, I actually like sales accepted leads. So I would keep, that's a keeper. And then sales qualified leads. That one less useful simply because if you measure people on SQ on sales qualified leads, then people are going to qualify garbage. Okay. Then last question, and this is leading the witness, but net promoter score, do you just do it for customers or do you segment between users and economic or executive decision makers? I would segment. In fact, we segment between economic buyers, admins, and users. Oh, interesting. Admins too. That's very robust. And do you find that the user scores have a higher correlation than economic or executive buyer scores or kind of equal to retention? In general, maybe this is an obvious statement, but like the most important is the economic buyer from a net retention point of view. The second is actually for us, the admin, and the third is the users. We care about all three, but that's like the, that's what the data tells us. That's a great data point for the audience. Okay. We got to wrap up, Jeremy. Quick questions on getting to know you a little bit better. What CEO or company is a must follow for SaaS executives today? Or which book do you highly recommend for a SaaS operator today? Yeah. If you're a sales manager, I really loved uh, Dave Brock's sales manager survival guide. I thought that was awesome. If you're a salesperson, I really like the Transparency Sale by Todd Capone. But yeah, there's so many, so many awesome books out there. But those are two good ones to start with. Which tool, not your own, should every SaaS company be using? LinkedIn. Uh-huh. Perhaps that's Link- obvious. LinkedIn Sales Navigator or just your general LinkedIn? I actually don't necessarily think it matters all that much. So either way is fine. Okay. Last question. We were discussing, we both have children who are are just entered or getting ready to enter the college world. If you were talking to a recent college graduate or someone ready to graduate next year, what would be the advice you give to them if they want to be a SaaS founder someday? Just go do it right now. I think what a lot of people make the mistake of is they think, okay, I just, I have to go work in finance. I have to work in sales. I have to work in marketing. I have to work in product. I have to work in all these things, but you will, you'll never have less responsibility like house and family and mortgage and, you know, cars and all the rest of that than when you're in your early twenties and you will, you will learn way faster by just starting the company and doing than you will by iterating through all those functions. I mean, that's great advice because I'll tell you, if you don't do it early, you're going to be like me and you're going to be 30 years into career. And it's like, I've helped other people grow their companies. Maybe I should go grow my own someday, which is what I'm doing now. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's, I think it is, it it is a barbell thing, which is, I think you can do it in your, you know, early to mid twenties 
And then unless you have special circumstances, right? Like, you know, you marry a prince or a princess, you probably can't do it again until you're financially secure and, you know, your kids are grown. So you're, you know, you're going to looking at, at 50 plus to be able to do it. So I think those are the, but those are two really, really great times to, to take that kind of exciting journey. Jeremy, thank you so much for being a guest on the Metrics of Major Up podcast. And to the listening audience, if you're enjoying the content and the guests that we're having, it would mean the world to us to go ahead and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcasting app and leave us a rating and even a recommendation on how we can even make it better for our listening audience. Jeremy, thank you so much for being our guest on the Metrics of Major Up podcast. That was a blast. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Metrics to Measure Up podcast. If you would like to learn more about B2B SaaS metrics and benchmarks, please visit revopsquared.com.